Well, my wife, she recently sent me a, a podcast of two Christian neuroscientists discussing how their research on the brain confirms what the Bible teaches. Humans are wired from the moment we're born to connect with people through relationships, and that's because we're made in the image of God. He's triune. He is relational within himself. Joy, then, according to these doctors' research, is based on your relational connectivity to others. Now, that didn't surprise me at all, but I was surprised by their working definition of joy. This is pretty interesting to me. They said joy is being the twinkle in someone else's eye. Now, that might sound cheesy to some of you. It sounds a little cheesy to me, but it is completely consistent with Scripture and other scientific studies. Proverbs 15 says, bright eyes gladden the heart. And the idea is that when someone warmly greets you, when they light up, when they see you, that that brings joy in your heart, that does something inside of you, especially if that person is someone that you respect. If it's someone that you look up to and they light up when they see you, that that impacts the way that you view yourself. It impacts your, your identity, even if you don't realize it. Now, these researchers, they even found that very young children respond differently. Their brains respond differently to someone who says, I love you, versus someone who says it with joy and excitement clearly evident on their face. Even little babies, they can tell the difference in people's facial expressions when they're actually excited about them. Much research has also been done in recent years on the correlation between decreasing face-to-face -face interaction and the dramatic rise in anxiety, depression, and other mental health issues, especially as that face-to-face -face interaction is replaced by social media. The less there's face-to-face, kind of eyeball-to-eyeball connection with other human beings, the more there is going to be dysfunction in human beings' souls. Now, as vital as human face-to-face -face interaction is, as important as it is to be seen by other human beings, our passage today, it highlights an even more profound need that we have in our souls, and that is to know, does God see me? Does God see me? And if so, how does he view me? To see that in our text, we're going to work through two main points. We're going to look at the Hagar solution and the God who sees. If you're taking notes, that's the Hagar solution and the God who sees. For our first main point, Listen again to verse 1, which introduces us to all three key characters in this passage. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Let me remind you that our passage today, it comes after the, the spiritual high that Abram experienced when God confirmed his incredible promises to him with a covenant in chapter 15. God specified for the first time in, in that interaction that his promise to give Abram offspring and descendants, it was not going to be by adoption, but instead it would be his very own biological son. We're not told how much time passed between the covenant ceremony we studied last week and this passage, but as Derek Kidner points out, this chapter marks another stage in eliminating every means but miracle toward the promised birth. That is exactly right. And the introduction of, of Sarai and Hagar sets the scene. Sarai, Abram's wife, has overall been an exemplary model of faith thus far in Genesis. 
Now, she did not personally receive the call from God that Abram did, but she supported Abram and bravely left her family behind to go to a foreign land, now, to leave her country and live as a, a sojourner in tents. She stuck faithfully to, to Abram through his shining moments of faith, but also through his big failures and moments of doubt. Hebrews 11 shows that she did this because she was a woman of God. She had faith that God would fulfill what he'd promised. At this point, though, they had been in the, the land for 10 years, Abram and Sarai. And that means that it had been over a decade since God had promised them offspring, and she still had not been able to conceive. So at this point, she's not any closer to, to conception, to having a child than the moment that they left Ur. After mentioning her inability to conceive, verse 1 tells us that Sarai did own an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And Hagar was almost certainly acquired from Pharaoh uh, by Abram in chapter 12 during that whole fiasco in Egypt where Abram almost ruined his wife and his family. Verse 2 quickly addresses the significance of Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. Sarai's initial statement is true. God is ultimately sovereign, and so God is the one who had ultimately prevented her from becoming pregnant. This is a, a tough, tough providence from God. But as you read through the whole passage, it appears that there was much more than just sadness in Sarai's statement. There's also bitterness as well. It sounds like she's blaming God more than trusting God here. And after 10 years of hoping and praying and waiting, Sarai's patience, it has finally reached its limit. And I can sympathize with that. Now, there are some goals in life where time is your friend. And there's others where it's not. You know, for example, becoming a millionaire. If you want to become a millionaire, I don't know this personally, but from what I hear, time is your friend. You have more time to work, more time to save, more time to invest. So if you want to become a millionaire, time is your friend. On the other hand, when I was younger, I dreamed of playing in the NBA. Now, every year that goes by now, my chances of ever playing in the NBA stay at a solid 0%. Like I have no, like I have no, no hope. You know, recently I was asked to play in a, a church basketball league, and there were eight games during the season, and I only played in four because Every single game, I injured myself. <laughs> it was like a miracle if I could just make it through the game and walk off. And so there are, there are certain goals where time is not your friend. This, this desire to have a child for Sarai, time is not her friend. Every year that goes by, it's just increasingly clear. There's no hope for her physically of having a son. Sarai knew, though, that God was going to give Abram a biological son. She believed that. But she reached a point here where she assumed it wasn't going to be through her. And so because of that, she makes a shocking and sick suggestion. She urges Abram to sleep with her servant and provide the couple a child through her. Now, I hope as you hear that, I hope that sounds shocking and sick to you. I hope that grosses you out. But what you need to understand is that that was completely normal in that culture. That was common practice in that culture. Multiple legal documents have been found from that time and area that all record that if a woman could not bear a child, then she could give one of her servants to her husband as a wife or concubine to bear a child for the barren couple so that the servant could act as a surrogate for the barren 
wife. That's why Sarah says, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. She'd have a, a child, and then Sarah would claim the child as her own. Now, the fact that this practice was normal in Sarai's culture, it should sober us. And it should sober us because we look at that and we think, that is, that is so clearly wrong. Like, that is such a terrible idea. But again, in their culture, that's what everyone did. That's what all barren couples did. And God had promised to give them a child. So it's easy to see how they could compromise here under pressure. I think the, the fact that, that it was normal in their society should also give us pause because there's things in our lives. There's things from our, our family upbringing. There's probably even things in our church that just seem normal to us. But other cultures, other believers could look in and say, that, that's not consistent with God's will. There might even be things that are, are actually in complete violation of God's will, like what Abram and Sarai do here. So Sarai, she brings Abram her immoral but culturally normal plan. And the plan, the idea, of it, the idea of it is to help God fulfill his promises to them. Now, what does wise old father Abraham do? What does father Abraham do here? Well, in verse two, after the plan comes to him, Abraham says to his bride, over my dead body. Actually, he doesn't say that. <laughs> I, wish, I wish Abram would have said that. That's what Abram should have said. But sadly... What he actually says, what he actually says is Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Abram apparently didn't put up any argument. It doesn't even say that he prayed about it, asked God about it. He, he just agreed and followed through with the plan. And verses two through three in the original language clearly condemn this by echoing some of the same language from the fall in Genesis chapter three. Verse two literally says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. The only other time that that phrase is used in Genesis is when God rebukes Adam for listening to the voice of Eve and eating the forbidden fruit. The same Hebrew words are also used when Eve took and gave the fruit to Adam. As Hagar take, or I'm sorry, as, as Sarai taking Hagar and giving Hagar to Abram. Moses wants us to see this as another mini fall, another major failure to trust and obey God. And like the fall, this would have serious consequences as well. We begin to see those emerge in verses four through five. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Now, Hagar, so far, has been treated as property in this passage. It's possible she was not even asked her thoughts about the plan or desired to participate in it before it was settled by Abram and Sarai. Now, Hagar is definitely the victim in this scenario. But as you read through the text, we, we see that she's not entirely without fault either. Once she conceived, which appears to have happened during Abram's very first night with her, her attitude toward her mistress changed. Once she became pregnant, she became proud. She, she began to look down on her mistress with contempt, perhaps flaunting her pregnancy to provoke Sarai. And so this compounded Sarai's emotional pain that she was already in. She had the normal pain of a barren woman desperately wanting a child. She had the added pain of that culture looking down on barren women, viewing that as a curse. 
She also had the frustration of not experiencing God's promises, that God had promised to give Abram a son, and she couldn't provide. Now that Hagar has conceived, there's the additional weight on Sarah. She's been trying probably for over 50 years at this point to have a child. And Hagar immediately, immediately conceives. And so now it's, it's clear there's no chance that this is a problem with Abraham's plumbing. It's, it's her. It's her body that's the issue. Then on top of all of that, her plan to have a surrogate mother, it's not going as she hoped. Hagar's attitude is not just offensive to Sarah. I'm sure that she viewed it as a threat as well. And that's why she goes back to Abram and she says, this is on you. Abram, you're responsible for my suffering here. Now, when I read this, at least in the past, it's been hard to read this and not roll my eyes a little bit at Sarah. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, whose idea was this, Sarah? Like, you're, you were the one begging for this. Like, you, you asked for this. This is exactly what you, you wanted. And yet, in reality, she has a valid point. Abram, as the head of the household, was primarily responsible for the family. And although it wasn't his idea, he should not have agreed with her immoral request. He should have said, honey, honey, I know I want a child too, but you're asking me to sleep with another woman. Like, this is, this is not a good idea. This is not going to go well. That's what he should have done. And so the suffering of Sarai was ultimately a result of his failure once again to lead in a godly way. And he responds passively yet again in verse 6. In verse 6, instead of repenting and taking responsibility for the drama he allowed into his home, he gave his upset wife permission to do whatever she saw fit to her servant. And that led to Sarai's harsh mistreatment of Hagar. Now, we're not told specifically how Sarai mistreated Hagar, but it got so bad in verse 6 that she decided to run away. Now, at that day, that time, for her to run away as a, as a single pregnant woman, that meant that she was willing to risk death rather than to stay in her situation. The, the roads were treacherous. There were robbers. To go as a single woman, that was a very dangerous thing to do. So she was saying, I would rather die than stay in this current situation. What Sarai and Abram had thought was a solution to help God fulfill his plans, it quickly turned into a raging dumpster fire. Like that's the, that's the image in my mind. It's just a hot, hot mess. And this brought out the worst in both Abram and Sarai. The verse that I think of when I read this passage is Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do what? And do not rely on your own understanding. Abram and Sarai, they didn't reject the promise of God. They believed God was going to fulfill his promise, but they sought to fulfill it in ways that were clearly against his will. They relied on their own understanding. We get ourselves into trouble so often as believers because we rely on our own understanding. And one area that I see often in myself and, and in the church is in the area of conflict. See, when there's conflict, my natural reaction, what I naturally try to do is navigate it in a way that, that no one is offended with me. I, I want to avoid people being upset with me. But the longer I follow Christ, the more, more convinced I am that that is so unloving to other people. If I actually trust God, if I actually love those around me, then what I need to do is focus on what, just doing whatever God wants, saying whatever God wants, regardless of how people respond. That, that's going to be what's best for everyone that I care about. A couple other areas that believers often get themselves into trouble by relying on their own understanding is in the area of money and sex. 
and with money, instead of, instead of trusting God, instead of acting as stewards of their money, trusting God with it. So often believers put their trust in their money instead. They rely on their own understanding and how they handle their finances. The same with sex and, and dating relationships. So often instead of listening to God's commands, factoring in God's wisdom, people are just led by their emotions. People, people are led by their flesh and they make their decisions based on their own understanding, relying on their own understanding. When I was, when I was younger and would ask my dad for counsel, I, I still do. When I was younger, he, every time I'd ask him for counsel, I should say almost every time, he would begin by sharing Proverbs 3.5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. And I, I remember a few times being like, okay, yeah, yeah, I know, Dad, I know. But what do you, what do you think? Like, I'm asking you your, what your thoughts are. And the older I get, I look back and I see my dad's wisdom. Whatever situation we're in, whatever decision we're trying to make, the starting point is do not, or trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. Sarai's plan, based on her own understanding, was a disaster. And Abram only made things worse for his wife and for poor Hagar. But their failures, it leads us to our second main point, which is the God who sees. This is verses 7 and 8. We'll pick this back up. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of, of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Hagar had likely traveled a day or two at this point, and she went straight south, almost certainly headed back to her homeland of Egypt. You know, she was almost there. She'd almost made it when the angel of the Lord appeared to her. This is the first of many times where the angel of the Lord is mentioned. It doesn't say an angel of the Lord. It says the angel of the Lord. And this, this angel is mentioned, this figure is mentioned many times in the Old Testament, and many scholars believe that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, or at least just a manifestation of God. And the reason is because the angel of the Lord is often referred to in divine terms or even as God directly, like in this passage. Later on, we're going to see that, that Hagar, seeing the angel of the Lord, in her mind, that is the same thing as seeing God. I want you to, to notice that the angel of the Lord starts by mentioning Hagar by name. Neither Abram nor Sarai ever do that in this passage. They simply refer to her as a slave, but the first word out of God's mouth to this oppressed woman is her name, Hagar. That's how he addresses her. While he acknowledges her position under Sarai's authority, he starts with her, with her personhood. He starts with her individually, and his question set up the hard command that he's going to give in verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. This was the last thing that she would have wanted to hear. She'd risk her life to get away from Sarah, and now God is commanding her to go back and voluntarily submit to the one, submit to this one when she'd almost made it to Egypt. God, of course, knew the weight of his request. And so along with the command, he gives Hagar a promise and a revelation as well to give her motivation in verses 10 through 12. The promise that he gives her is that he's going to greatly multiply her offspring so that they'd be too many to count. The idea here is that, is that Hagar is going to share in God's promised blessing to Abram to make him the father of many nations. The emphasis, though, on, on her offspring 
It subtly implies that this is not going to be the line of promise that the world would be blessed through. This is further confirmed as God gives Hagar a glimpse into the future of her child. So God gives a a revelation about what's ahead for her child, and it starts with the first gender reveal party in history. So God, he tells tells Hagar, millennia before ultrasounds, he says, that baby in in your womb, I'm knitting it together, and it's gonna be a boy. You're gonna have a son, and you need to name that son Ishmael. Ishmael is the first of only seven people given their name directly by God before birth in the Bible. And his name means God hears. God hears. God told Hagar to name Ishmael that because he heard Hagar's cry of affliction and he answered her. Also in his revelation, God gave Hagar a a look into Ishmael's character, describing him as a wild donkey. This meant that, that he would not be able to be tamed by others. And God also said that he was going to be an aggressive man who was at odds with everyone else who would settle near but outside of Abram's household. Now, if that, if that sounds uh, like a negative statement to you, I want you to put yourself in Hagar's shoes. Imagine being Hagar. The fact that her son would be untamed and strong and not stay in Abram's household would likely have been a great comfort to her instead of, instead of a concern If you study the rest of Genesis, what you'll see is that Ishmael's life, it unfolded exactly as God revealed before his birth. And interestingly, the Arab peoples claim that Ishmael is their ancestor. They claim they've descended from him. And that appears to be true, at least for many of them in part. And if that's true, then the conflict between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac has continued for thousands of years. And it's still active today. Now, God, of course, loves both Arabs and Jews. He's going to bless all the nations. But my point here is that I'm sure Abram and Sarah would have never guessed that their attempt to give God a hand, to speed up his fulfillment of the promises, would lead to so much conflict and pain. On a pastoral note, I can affirm that while God can forgive all of our sins, that doesn't mean that the consequences of them just magically disappear. Now, sin, it can lead to close relationships ending. It can lead to, to families being torn apart forever. It can lead to churches splitting. It can lead to premature death. And this week, I had, a, I had a painful reminder of the consequences that sin can bring. An old, an old friend of mine reach out, reached out to me and asked me to come to a court date that he had. I didn't have to speak at it. He just asked me to come and, and pray for him and support him. And I think this guy is a believer. But he'd gotten out of consistent fellowship years ago. He'd gotten back into drugs and made a number of really, really foolish decisions. I think he repented probably about a year ago. He's been trying to, to do what he knows is right. But at this point, he's on the verge of losing custody of his children. And so unless there's a miracle, he is probably gonna have his rights terminated. And so he's not gonna be able to be a parent to his children for the rest of their lives, at least, at least until they turn 18. Now, after all the gross and ugly aspects of this passage, it's a little bit painful to read through. But at this point, we finally arrive at Hagar's response to the Lord, and it's worth the wait. This is verses 13 through 14. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roy, 
For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? That's why the well is called Ber Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar's statement here, it is remarkable on a number of levels. First, it's the only time in the Old Testament that God has ever given a new name by a human being. And this name, it doesn't come from Abram. It doesn't come from Moses or King David. Instead, it comes from an Egyptian slave. That's fascinating to me. This is also before God formally revealed his name to Moses at the burning bush. And so Hagar, who would have likely learned much about God during her time in Abram's household, she may have wondered, what should she call him? What's the name for Abram's God? And so the name that she chooses is both profound and intimate. El Roy means the God who sees. This speaks of God's omniscience and omnipresence, that God knows everything that could be known. God, he sees everything. He's everywhere present. And it is profound as those attributes of our, of our God. But this name says is much more than that. This name recognizes that God not only knows her, but cares about her. That's what Hagar's communicating. When Hagar called God El Roy, she confessed that God had been completely aware of her her entire life. When she was taken from her homeland in Egypt, God saw her. When she was mistreated and treated like property by Sarai and Abram, God saw her. When she fled and cried out to God in desperate prayer, God saw her. When no one seemed to see and value Hagar as a human being, God saw her and cared about her and had a specific plan that he was working for her life. Although the text doesn't specify this, it seems to me that Hagar might have been one of the first converts to God through Abram's life. Although, obviously, in in spite of Abram, largely. And the reason I say that is because Hagar believed and obeyed the promise of God. the, The passage ends in verses 15 through 16 by confirming Hagar did the very thing that she would have wanted to do the least. She went back. She went back to Abram's household and she put herself under Sarai's authority. Instead of continuing to Egypt, she went back to the one who had mistreated her. And the reason she did that is because she realized, God sees me. God values me. God has a a plan for me. And she trusted God. Her statement, God sees me, is similar to what many people experience when they come to Christ. That there's this realization, kind of in hindsight, looking back, that even though you weren't aware of God at the time, He was directing your life. He was sovereignly leading you to this moment where you spiritually could see the one who's always seen you. Now, this beautiful section, it highlights two important truths for us. And the first is that God sees those unseen by others. God sees those unseen by others. God hates favoritism. God is not a respecter of persons, and that means he's not impressed by human success status or skills or any other criteria that we can so easily be influenced by. Even in the church, there can be the temptation to value certain people and overlook others based on their gifts or abilities or maturity level. Regardless of how people act, though, the reality is that there are no unseen people to God. He's near to the brokenhearted. It says he's near to all who call to him. He knows us inside and out better than we know ourselves, and even more amazing than God's knowledge of us is what Hagar learned, and that is that God cares for those who are not cared for by others. 
God cares for those who are not cared for by others. Psalm 103 verse 6 says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. All who are oppressed, God is aware and God is concerned. Over and over again in the scriptures, you see God's heart for the poor. You see God's heart for the weak and God's heart for the oppressed. And God wants his people to display his heart and love for people in need as well. That's one of the reasons why I, I love mission, mission to the City and our soccer league. These are opportunities to serve our community, but often to serve people who might not have the resources to do another soccer league or, or to give an oil change to people who they don't have the resources and the luxury just to, to go out and get an oil change whenever they want. And one of the ladies that I talked to during Mission to the City, she was almost on the verge of tears because she said, I don't have any money and I've needed an oil change. I'm stressed out because of my, my car. I've gone so long without an oil change. And so when I saw this sign, she was just so happy. She's like, yes, I can get an oil, I can get an oil change for free here. You know, a, a question for you to, to think about and even pray about this week is are there any ways that you and your family are intentionally trying to care for those who are not normally cared for? Are there anything that you're trying to do to reflect God's heart in this way? If you're thinking about that and nothing comes to mind, one thing I would commend to you is the ministry Together for Good. We have flyers uh, just on the, the back there uh, by the, the offering box. But this ministry, we highlighted it in our last member meeting. And one of the reasons I'm excited about it is because I think it helps to serve some of the most vulnerable individuals in our community. What this ministry does is it comes alongside of families that are getting to the point where DHS is going to have to step in and remove the children. And so there's different ways to, to serve families by either welcoming kids into your house temporarily or even just making meals for those families. And the idea is they come alongside and they give support, they give training to help these parents get to a place where, where they can be safe parents to their kids, that they can provide a stable home for their children. So this is something I'm excited for our church to be more and more involved in. And some of you are already helping in this capacity. And as a pastor, I'm, I'm very proud. Many of you in here, you are wonderful examples of caring for those who are not normally cared for. We have some incredible people in this church. And I, I believe if, if we're going to keep having influence on the South Side and keep growing, there are many tangible needs on the South Side. I think God's going to want us to, to meet more of those needs to serve our community in a greater capacity, not, not less. Now, at the same time, as important as it is, as it is to care for the, physical, the, physical, and the uh, physical needs, there's an even more fundamental need that we have to keep in mind if we're going to represent God well and if we're going to love other people well. And there's a question that's just jumped out to me from this passage all week, and I, I think it helps to clarify that most fundamental need. And the question is this, is it always comforting to you to know that God sees? Are you always comforted knowing that God sees you? Or are other people always comforted by that? The answer, if we're honest, is no. <laughs> no, it's not. Over and over again in Scripture, when people are in the presence of God, they're terrified instead of comforted because of their sin. David in Psalm 39, when he was being convicted of his sin, he ends the psalm by saying this to God. This is what David says to God. Turn your angry gaze from me so that I may be cheered up before I die and I'm gone. That's how the psalm ends. He's like, God, stop looking at me. Like, just stop, stop paying attention to me so I can be happy for a minute. Revelation 6, when the return of Christ is imminent, 
It says that all the people in the world, great and small alike, they say this. And they, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of God. Do you see that? What they're saying is, they say, hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of God because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? They'd rather be crushed to death by a mountain than meet the gaze of their creator. That's what they would prefer instead of looking at God in the face. Now, there are many other scriptures we could cite, but even in today's passage, Hagar recognized the holiness of God and she was amazed that God had appeared to her and she survived. The NASB translation captures her sentiment well in verse 13. She says, have I seen him here and lived after he saw me? Have I seen the living one and yet I've still lived? The reason she's amazed is that God is holy and God hates sin and sinners cannot be accepted or be in a relationship with God because of how we've lived. Now, no matter what we try and, and tell ourselves, our conscience regularly testifies to us. It regularly proves to us that we haven't lived the way that we should. And when we stand before God on judgment day, our sin and the eternal judgment that we deserve, it's going to be undeniable. Since God truly looks on sin with an angry gaze, since he hates it, how can the name of the God who sees be a comfort instead of a terror? Well, there was still a degree of, of mystery about this in the Old Testament, which is why I think Hagar was so amazed to have survived. But for us as believers, with the scriptures, we can see that, that the answer to that is so clear now in Christ. Yes, it is true that God can never ignore our sin or simply look past it, but instead of pouring out his wrath on us, instead of pouring out his anger on us, God the Son stepped into this sin-spoiled world. Jesus is truly God and truly man, and he lived a perfect life without sin, a life that God the Father looked on with complete joy and delight. And yet despite his perfect life, Jesus voluntarily went to the cross. And on the cross, what happened is that God's hatred for sin, God's, God's angry gaze at sin, the wrath, his face of wrath, it was directed towards Christ instead of towards us. Jesus was punished for our sin so that we would not have to be. Jesus took all the real wrath of God for your sins, past, present, and future, so that anyone who would turn to Christ, you can be forgiven and you can be made a new creation. If you're a Christian, what that means for you is that God never looks on you with disgust. He never looks at you with wrath when you sin. And that's not because he doesn't hate sin. It's because all of God's righteous wrath for sin, it has already been satisfied by the sacrifice of his son. Now, I think that this is where most Christians often stop. I think most Christians, what we're amazed by is that God won't punish us like we know we deserve. I think that's, that's where we typically stop. I would maybe articulate it this way. We think to ourselves, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that tolerates a wretch like me. Isn't that amazing? God tolerates me. God endures me. And that would be amazing. <laughs> but if you're a Christian, what you have to understand is the gospel is so much more than that. What the gospel says is not only that God tolerates you, he delights in you. He doesn't, he doesn't just tolerate you. You're the twinkle in his eye. Remember that definition we looked at earlier from the brain surgeons? 
Joy is being the twinkle in someone else's eye. And if you're a believer, it is not a stretch to say that you're a twinkle in the eye of God. John 17, 23, Jesus prayed that believers would be united just as the the Godhead is united. And he says, then the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them. Them is his people here. It's you if you're a believer. The world will know that God loves you just as you have loved me. This is the the eternal joy between the Father and the Son. God couldn't love Jesus more. He couldn't be more pleased with him. He couldn't delight in him more. And God says, if you're a believer, that's how I view you. That's what Jesus is saying. The Father loves you that same way. In Luke 3, when Jesus was baptized, he came out of the water, and God said, you are my beloved Son. I I take delight in you. I take delight in you. Do you believe that that's how God views you? If you're a Christian, that's the same response that God has towards you. And one of my favorite times as a a father is when I I get a chance to just look my kids in the eye for a little bit. When they sit still long enough, where I can just look at them, kind of eyeball to eyeball, just look at them. Often before, before bed when they're finally tired, they don't have anything else to say, I'm laying them down. Or sometimes they'll get up early and crawl into bed with us. I love to just look at them because I, I try and tell them all the time that I love them. I try and say that every, every day over and over again, but I know they also need to see it. I, need to, I know they also need to hear me say that with my eyes. I'm so happy you're mine. I'm so glad that I get to be your dad. And I feel that. And it's like, I look at them. It's like, man, I'm so happy for you to be mine. And when you meditate on the cross, What God wants you to sense is the joy on his face to have you as his child. That's what God desires. You see, you're not going to be transformed by the conviction that God knows about you, that God's aware of your life. That will not transform you. If you want to be transformed by the gospel, you have to be moved by the reality that he knows you personally and loves you personally. And no matter what you're going through, whatever struggles or difficulties, he has a plan for you like he had for Hagar, do you believe that God delights in you? Some of you, you've gone to church your whole life, you've heard that, but is that functionally, is that functionally what you believe? Day to day, is that your experience of the Lord? See, 2 Corinthians three eighteen. it says, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in, as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So it says, as we look at the glory of the Lord, that's what transforms us. Well, what is that? What's the glory of the Lord? What are we supposed to look at to be changed? Well, Paul continues the argument, and he tells us in chapter 4, verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. There it is. Where's the glory of the Lord? Where do you look? It's in the face of Jesus Christ. It's who Jesus is and what he's done for you. The reason we need to hear the gospel and preach the gospel to ourselves every day is because we would never believe that God feels the way he does about us if he didn't say it. If we don't remind ourselves over and over again, we would never assume that naturally. So just to close, I have three quick applications for you. First, if you aren't a Christian, trust Christ to save you without your help. If you're here and you don't know the Lord, trust Jesus to save you without giving him a hand. Paul, he talks about this in Galatians 4. He uses this section with Hagar and Sarai. He uses it figuratively. 
And he says that the way Abram and Sarai, the way they treated Hagar, it's a picture of trying to save yourself by the law. It's trying to save yourself by your own efforts. And he said that that's from the flesh, and it doesn't lead to freedom. It doesn't lead to blessing. Instead, it leads to slavery and strife. Isaac, on the other hand, he represents salvation by grace that's accomplished supernaturally without any assistance from us and received only by faith. And so if you aren't a Christian, you need to reject any hope of saving yourself completely or, or even partially. God doesn't need your help. Instead, you need to look to Christ and Christ alone, what he did for you on the cross to eternally save you. If you're a believer here, then I would encourage you to meditate and marvel daily at how God sees you. Don't just thank God that he's aware of you. You need to meditate on the way that he's aware of you, the way that he views you. Romans 15, 13 is a, a promise I've been thinking about a lot recently. It says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want to experience the joy of God, the joy that Jesus died for you to experience, you have to believe what God says. You have to believe who he, who he says he is and how he views you. And so there's no replacement for, for getting time to preaching the gospel to ourselves in a fresh way every day to, to remind ourselves of these truths. Finally, the last thing I'd encourage you to do if you're a believer is ask God to help you see those who are unseen. Ask God to help you see those who are unseen. Maybe this is someone in your community group. Maybe it's someone in your neighborhood. Maybe this is by financially supporting a gospel-centered ministry to the poor, or to the exploited. But the idea here, for those of you who know Christ, is that we have the privilege of experiencing the joy of the Lord each day and reflecting that incomparable joy to our family and our friends and our community to show everyone, whether they're popular, whether they're unseen, we get to show people how sweet it is to know the God who sees. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. God, we thank you for what you've done for us, but I, I pray that you'd help us make the connection Lord, between what you've done for us and your heart towards us, the way that you view us. God, if there's anyone here who hasn't recognized their need for you to save them, that's trying to save themselves by their own efforts, then help them to see their need for Christ. God, for the rest of us, Lord, I, I pray that, that we'd in a fresh way be moved by your love. God, I thank you that as, as we see you more clearly, we're transformed. And so please, God, help us to, to love each other more the way that you've loved us. Help us in, in all of our relationships, God, to, to show your heart more clearly. And we do pray for our community. God, help us have a, a bigger and bigger impact on the south side, pointing, pointing people to the one who's changed us. Thank you for this time. And we pray all this in your great name, Jesus. Amen.